Hello, hello, everyone. This is Volts for August 4th, 2023. Voluntary carbon offsets are headed for a crash. I'm your host, David Roberts. Carbon offsets, whereby one party pays another party to reduce carbon emissions, are an extremely convenient thing to have for people, businesses, and institutions that have money to spend, want to do something green, and either can't or won't reduce their own emissions. So offset markets have flourished for decades, even in the face of investigation after investigation, expose after expose, showing that the emission reductions they represent are dubious or outright fraudulent. Things may be coming to a head, though, especially as it slowly sinks in that the Paris Agreement in many ways renders the entire enterprise of offsets moot. If everyone is trying to get as close as possible to zero emissions by 2050, what is gained by trading those emissions back and forth? A white paper digging deep into these subjects was recently published by none other than Joe Rome. Rome has a PhD in physics from MIT and worked at the Department of Energy in the 1990s, but most people in my world know him as one of the earliest and most influential climate bloggers. He has also authored numerous books on climate solutions. As of earlier this year, he is now a senior research fellow at the University of Pennsylvania Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media, being run by climate scientist Michael Mann. His first report is on offsets, and it is a doozy. I called to talk with him about the role offsets have played in the past, the reforms the UN is attempting to impose on them, and their future in a post-Paris world. Okay, with no further ado, Joe Rome, welcome to Volts. Thanks so much for coming. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Dave. You know, it's funny. I'm sure you will resonate with this. Probably the number one question I get asked my entire friggin' career is people writing in to say, hey, such and such, my utility or some firm or some company is offering me these voluntary offsets. Are they worth it? Is it worth it doing this? And I've been meaning forever and ever and ever to do something squarely on offsets because like what I always want to tell people is like, eh, no, they're kind of junky, but I don't want to exaggerate or stereotype. And I thought maybe I was missing some nuances. So then I read your paper and realized I was missing a bunch of nuances, but they're all nuances showing that offsets are way worse than I imagined, <laughs> far worse than I had even dreamed. So let's get into it. Let's just start though, in case any listeners out there don't know exactly what we're talking about. Just what is a carbon offset? And there's two basic kinds, the sort of mandatory kind and the voluntary kind. Just run real quick through what an offset is. Sure. Well, you know, I use a, a definition from the General Accounting Office. Uh, reductions of greenhouse gas emissions from an activity in one place to compensate for emissions elsewhere. So a, a typical transaction is the developed country or a company instead of reducing its own CO2 emissions, pays a developing country to reduce its emissions by an equivalent amount instead. And then if the buyer purchases enough offsets, uh, they've been going around calling themselves carbon neutral or net zero. And I would say the interaction that most people have had with offsets, the most common one is when you're buying an airline right. ticket and you sort of have that option to spend a few dollars to offset your emissions, usually by planting trees. And uh, uh, the short answer is uh, don't waste your money. Right. But the idea behind it originally, and they go way, way back, the idea behind it originally is that, you know, it's kind of expensive to reduce emissions in developed countries and in wealthy democracies. And there's lots of super, super cheap reductions waiting to be had in developing countries. So the idea was, let's flow some money from developed countries to developing countries. You'll help do some virtuous projects there and we'll reduce emissions. And it doesn't matter where you reduce emissions, right? Because it's all one atmosphere and you'll get cheap reductions. That was the driving idea. And conceptually speaking, it's not crazy. 
it just kind of turns out that every particular <laughs> turns out to be difficult to do uh, in a rational way. So we're going to get to some specifically sort of modern or contemporary issues around offsets relating to the Paris Agreement and how that kind of um, changes the whole playing field. But before we even get there, let's just talk about the history of offsets and the issues that face them, the difficulties, you know, this is the basic idea of like, I reduce emissions here and I sell it to you and then you count it against your total. The basic issues that they have faced. And, you know, I feel like every couple of years I see another big comprehensive sort of report come out saying, yeah, offsets are still mostly junk. So <laughs> as far as I know, they've been junk from the beginning, but just talk about some of the basic difficulties facing offsets. Sure. And uh, the phrase that there's this lots of super cheap emissions out there in developing countries, this is a very key phrase that we'll come back to because mm -hmm. it's that misconception that is really screwing up a, the way a lot of people are looking at how we're going to solve global warming. Right. Because they don't exist. <laughs> so the first offset uh, was 1988. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is uh, Mark Trexler worked on this. And this was a utility was just trying, you know, to see could they do a project in another country. Because utilities, you know, they figured they were going to be, they thought in 1988 they would be regulated uh, uh, sometime soon. Uh -huh. <laughs> so <laughs> they wanted to check this out. And so there was a voluntary market created and, and voluntary means it's unregulated. It is the wild, wild west. There is nobody out there who is saying this is a real offset and this isn't a real offset. So there's no government body that vets these in any way? It's all just private companies making claims? Exactly. And working with brokers or verifiers or creditors out there. And so, you know, that's sort of problem number one. When it, whenever you have a market that is completely unregulated, there is generally a race to the bottom, mm. which is to say, if I told you, hey, I can sell you a good carbon offset in Brazil for 20 bucks a ton, but someone else says, oh, I'll sell you an offset for $5 a ton. Who are you going to buy? Right. And it's important, I think, to say here too, like the seller has every incentive to sell as cheap as possible. The buyer has every incentive to buy as cheap as possible. Neither party in that buyer-seller relationship has any incentive at all to maintain quality. There's no regulatory backstop. There's no penalty for low quality. So both have every incentive in the world to cheap out on this. Absolutely. And, you know, I was where you were at at offsets until I decided to start really digging into them. So this is, it took me like six or seven months of really looking closely to realize, oh, this is worse than I thought. <laughs> but also it was tricky to explain. So I had to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to explain it. And indeed, there is an article, the, the, the scientific literature is like a nonstop assault on offsets. <laughs> um, and there was an article back in 2001 that basically said, yes, one of the problems with offsets is that both sides have an incentive to exaggerate. Right. Because the seller, they're getting paid a low dollars per ton, right? This is going to be a low dollars per ton market, right? So they have an uh, incentive to inflate the number of tons and not even care if they're real tons or not. Now, in most markets, right, the buyer cares about quality and quantity, right? Caveat emptor. You know, if someone says they're going to sell me 10 real oranges, but they sell me five rotten oranges, right, I'm going to object. But in the offset market, I'm not going to object because, in fact, I'm paying a price, fixed price. So for that price, I want to get as many Remember, this is sort of an imaginary negative quantity of things, right? So I right. want to be able to claim credit for as many offsets as possible for my money. And do I want to look under the hood and see if those are real offsets? I'll just say maybe some companies do. But, you know, in the vast majority of cases, nobody is really looking very closely under the hood. Right. And you said something crucial there, too, which is what you're allegedly buying when you buy an offset is – a unit of something not happening. Right. Right. So there were, there were going to be greenhouse gas emissions. And because of this money you're spending, there won't be. So you're buying basically a hypothetical 
like a, an alternate reality, a, a, something that didn't happen, which I think we should say, like, even if there were a regulator and even if buyers and sellers both were extremely interested in quality, it's just intrinsically difficult to measure a hypothetical <laughs> with, with precision, right? It's difficult to say what would have happened. Right. And this is the famous additionality problem. Right. This problem has always been identified as one of the two or three biggest problems. How do you know that the money you're spending to fund this project, that the emissions reduction wouldn't have happened anyway? And this particularly comes into effect when we're talking about renewable energy, because a lot of offsets were renewable energy projects. Now, you know, you've done many podcasts on, you know, these remarkable drop in renewable prices over the years to the point where they, you know, in the last decade, increasingly became the cheapest thing to do anywhere. So it became increasingly clear that offsets that were funding renewables, the, the money from the offsets weren't making the difference. So in fact, the offset would have happened anyway. And so the buyer shouldn't get credit, right, right. for something that would have happened anyway, right? They didn't make any difference with their money. And there's another tricky feature here, which is there are two types of offsets. There's one where I pay you something that will actually reduce emissions, like maybe I could pay you to shut down a coal plant, or maybe I could pay you to plant trees and pull carbon out of the air. But a lot of offsets, many of the most popular ones are called avoided emissions. That's where I pay you not to cut down trees. Right. And this raises so, uh, so many issues. Like, for instance, if I own a bunch of trees, I could sell you not chopping down, you know, X parcel. And then I could just turn around and chop down Y parcel to compensate. Right. So I end up chopping down just as many trees. But after you've paid me not to chop down these, I just turn around and chop down those instead. So the emissions, the trees are all the same. That's called that's these all have names. You know, <laughs> that's the leakage problem. Right. And you might even be good faith, maybe. Maybe you, you're not going to, but the lumber company still needs the wood, right? right? The reason they're cutting down the trees, presumably, you know, not always, but, you know, in general, they're going to sell the wood. So the lumber company will just go to the next province. And the question is, how much leakage is there? And the answer is, as it turns out, there's a lot of leakage because, again, people aren't cutting down the trees for no reason, Right. I mean, some people might be, but there's always a reason why they're cutting. They might be cutting down the trees to grow crops, but if they want to grow crops, they're going to grow crops somewhere. And so, yeah, this is very, very difficult. Uh, Now, we all want, by the way, we, we do want to stop deforestation. Right. We do, in fact, want to figure out how to support ending deforestation as everyone committed. Not everyone, but a whole bunch of nations, as you know, in in. in Glasgow, uh, made that commitment, and I think we all support it. The problem is just that you shouldn't turn that into an offset. An offset is another way of thinking of an offset. It's a license for the buyer to pollute. I'm paying you not to pollute so I can keep polluting. Right. right? right. So you, you don't want to turn protecting forests into someone else's license to pollute. So there are lots and lots of problems, and indeed, you know, there are countries, I won't name them, but there are countries out there that noticed who have a very good rec- track record, they weren't deforesting, and they realized no one was doing offset projects with them. The only way they could get offset projects if they said, you know, we are thinking about doing some deforestation <laughs> right. in our country, and uh, so maybe we'd like, you know, sort of, you know what kind of deal that is. Yeah. And people can Google that. Nice forest there, be a shame if something happened to it. Exactly. And that's, again... You know, paying people not to do something is like not to grow crops. I mean, it's going to get you in trouble. And so over time, these problems never went away. And the voluntary offset program ambled along. It was not very big through 2005. In fact, the total amount of offsets from 1988 to 2005 was about $300 million. So, you know, not a lot of money from a global perspective. Then came the uh, Kyoto Protocol, the 1997 agreement in which the rich nations committed to make some modest reductions by 2010, but the developing countries did not. Right. But 
In order to uh, make it easier for the richer countries to sign on to this, Kyoto Protocol included something called the Clean Development Mechanism, the CDM. And the Clean Development Mechanism was simply an offset program, but this is a regulated offset program. This would be, you know, sometimes this is called a compliance market. It's used to comply with an agreement. And the problem was that the rich countries were buying these offsets from countries that didn't have any inventory that was tracked. They didn't have a baseline. So there was nothing to stop them from, yes, building a renewable plant and selling you that as an offset, but they could still keep building coal plants. And one of the points that I make in the paper is that between 2006 and 2022, and the CDM is still running, the Clean Development Exim is still running, the biggest seller of offsets was China. China sold half of all the offsets that were sold. During that time, China added so many coal plants that it added almost the equivalent of a total current U.S. emissions, right? (laughs) So China simultaneously didn't develop cleanly, dramatically increased their CO2 pollution, and in the worst of all possible worlds, all the renewable plants that they were going to build anyway They sold those to the rich countries, which then used them to actually not meet their target, right? So that resulted in net pollution. There are analyses out there in the literature which basically say the clean development mechanism as a whole led to 6 billion tons more CO2 emissions. Uh And this, remember, is the regulated one. So it's not like bringing in a regulator can solve what are basically intrinsic problems, right? Like just, there's just the, the mismatch of incentives is not something, I mean, you would need the world's best regulator scrutinizing every, every penny and it would still be difficult. So even from the beginning of offset markets, the beginning of the voluntary market, and then accelerating with the CDM, like I swear, I've seen at least four or five massive literature reviews, reports, et cetera, et cetera, saying, all these markets are junk. Yes. The CDM market is junk. It's still junk. It's still junk. It's still junk. And that's been going on, as you say now, for over like 15 years. So are offsets finally starting to lose their luster? Are they starting to you know, lose their reputation? And then if that's true, what happens to companies or countries that are sort of staking their claims of emission reductions on offsets? And that's a lot of private companies at this point that are going around saying – you know, we're net zero because we bought all these offsets. What happens if the reputation of offsets finally collapses? Is it going to collapse? In the last 18 months, since Glasgow, really, since uh, November 2021, the price of nature-based offsets, those were the, became the most popular. That was either planting trees or paying people not to cut down trees. And there are some emerging ones, but those are, are the big ones. They have collapsed 90% in price. And you are correct that there are a lot of these exposés. In fact, you know, I I have like 160 footnotes in this paper. (laughs) And I mean, there are literature reviews, right? And there are major reports by independent bodies. And then there's the media. And the media has been increasingly scrutinizing them. And and anyone who fought Bloomberg, for instance, has been doing regular exposés and really basically calling them fake One of the big decisive moments was in January, the UK Guardian, along with uh, the German Dizit and an independent group called, uh, uh, I think, Source Materials, they had done a major nine-month research effort with scientists, and they were looking specifically at uh, what had been considered high-quality offsets were protecting the Brazilian rainforest. These are offsets that were bought by Shell and Disney and Gucci. And they found that 94% of them were worthless. <laughs> and that 94, 95% number is not at all different, any different. There, there was a 2016 study of the clean development mechanism by the European Commission, which looked at hundreds of the projects, and they concluded that only 2% were high quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if I'm Disney, you know, why should I 
care. I get to greenwash. I get to look green. I get super chief offsets. Maybe I just say, you know, nobody reads these exposés. Nobody cares. Everybody's doing well here. Why should Disney care about this happening? Yeah, and the and the answer is that you know finally, uh, I would say the environmental community and the people who do care about this started using different tactics, which is to call out companies and to actually bring lawsuits. Mm. And there have been a lot of lawsuits in the last twelve to eighteen months. The lawsuits are of two kinds. The most common kind is where you go to the regulator in the country, the advertising regulator and say, this is false advertising. The Swiss regulator, for instance, ruled finally that you know the, the World Cup, the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, had been calling itself uh, carbon neutral. Yes, and, I remember. And uh, that's FIFA, if I'm pronouncing it right, or Fife, but FIFA, you know, the soccer federation had been making this claim. And this was finally taken to the Swiss regulator. And the Swiss regulator said, this is all misleading. You haven't proven that you're doing anything, so please stop calling the World Cup carbon neutral. <laughs> and if I can just make a, a tell a, a you know a thirty second story of just how bad that this, this is very symbolic of the voluntary market. As I said, you know renewables become so cheap, right? That it became very dubious that an offset could support a renewable project because it was going to happen anyway. So in 2019, the two biggest creditors in the world, which are Vera and the gold standard, they decided we're not going to uh, call, allow any offset project. We're not going to, you know, verify any offset project that involves uh, funding renewables unless it's in a very, very poor country. But, you know, the overwhelming majority of them were not counting. So they stopped. But because this is the wild, wild west, guess what? Cutter decided it was going to launch its own offsetting verifying company, crediting company, which they did. And they said, we're going to take all comers. We will take any renewable project and we will credit it as an offset. And uh. guess what? <laughs> guess who's going to be a big customer of ours? So yes, that is a large way that the World Cup became a carbon neutral. And by the way, you can Google it. Saudi Arabia set up its own in the last couple months. They set up their own crediting firm and they are issuing offsets to their many polluting companies. So we're seeing a lot more of these lawsuits. There have been lawsuits in the Dutch court because Shell keeps trying to claim that its oil is carbon neutral or somehow good for the environment. And they've lost four times in a row. The British has something called the Advertising Standards Authority, and they've now issued guidance. Please do not use carbon neutral or net zero. Last fall, Evian, if you buy a bottle of Evian water, it says carbon neutral on it. So they've now been sued for that. That is a trial that's undergoing. And it has now gotten to the point where law firms this year, law firms have been issuing memos to their clients saying, guess what? You know, this is a very ripe area for lawsuits because this whole offset business is kind of dubious. But environmentalists are, you know, like they're caring a lot more about climate change. And these are starting to launch. And there was a advertising magazine, The Drum, which basically advised clients that, you know what, suddenly you have to understand offsets are becoming a reputational and a legal risk. Some people may know at the end of June, a lawsuit was filed in federal court in California against Delta, because Delta has been calling itself the world's first carbon neutral airline. And this Basically, this is the sewer, you know, person litigant said, you know, I bought this ticket because I thought you would solve like the climate problem. And now I learn you hadn't. <laughs> right. This has started to have an impact because you may have caught the news that at the very end of June, Nestle's publicly said we are withdrawing all the claims that we are planning to make about carbon neutral for Kit Kat and guess what? Perrier water. Interesting. So even if you're a company that doesn't care particularly about this as such, right, as in terms of carbon emissions, you're going around buying these standard sort of voluntary offsets and making these claims, which is something that, you know, has been a herd activity, right? Yeah. Like it's it's fine to do it because everybody else is doing it. But now like 
the slower, weaker members of the herd are being picked off here. Like you're actually in some danger now of legal exposure, basing the claims on these goofy offsets. Absolutely. It's like there's two stories going on. On the one hand, it seems like the kind of there's a house of cards here that's about to collapse. Yeah. But on the other hand, as you say, there are like more and more kind of scammy people herding into this market to sell them. So it's tough to see how that shakes out. No one can stop that, really, <laughs> right. uh, uh, because right. it's an unregulated market. We, we will get to, uh, in a little bit, w- the one player who could make a real difference. But fundamentally, it is only going to be turning something that has been done for good PR, right? They were all doing this to try to say, oh, we're good environmental citizens. Why? Not because we're reducing our own emissions, but we're paying other people to reduce them for us. And that is now starting to lose its luster, right? So as people start to realize and maybe get sued, maybe they'll get, a, you know, a group of environmentalists will, will write a letter saying, you know, this is a bogus claim. You know, as that starts to become more popular, and I think that that is, it is increasingly something that you're going to be seeing happening, it's going to become bad PR. And so it's going to be a reputational risk and a possible legal risk. And those two together, I think, you know, it's going to start dawning on people. And I think one, sh- one can say that no serious company should be purchasing offsets to make claims about carbon neutral and, and net zero. And I will say in the reverse, which is that any company that is, is not a serious company. And it's no longer, you know, just people like me saying this. The fact of the matter is, is that the secretary general set up a UN expert group to look at this specific issue, which is offsets by non-government entities. And in Egypt at COP27, they reported out and basically said, no, please stop saying that you're using offsets to become (laughs) net zero. You can't become net zero that way. And by the way, the, the biggest independent group out there working with companies to you know, look at uh, targets to see if they're real. You may have heard of them, the Science-Based Targets Initiative. They have also said the same thing. You may no longer use offset. You know, we're going to develop a plan for you to make a science-based target where you reduce emissions, you know, 50% by 2030 mm-hmm. and get down, you know, very, very close to zero by 2050. But if you cut your emissions 50% by 2030, you can't go out into the voluntary market, buy the rest of those tons and say you're net zero. That doesn't count. So, yeah, I I would say more and more of the serious players are walking away from this notion that offsets are real and can be used by companies to pretend that they're doing something. Let's move on to what I think is um, an interesting, not new, but newer issue around offsets. So as you say, the sort of explosion of the offsets began with Kyoto because developed nations were supposed to make reductions and developing nations were not obligated to do so. So under that regime, it makes sense for developing nations to sort of sell their reductions to developed nations, right? If If you don't have to make them yourself, why not sell them to people who have to make them? Then comes Paris. So under the Paris Agreement, the Paris Framework, everybody is supposed to be making reductions, including developing nations. So then we get to an interesting problem of double counting. So if I'm a country, I reduce emissions by X and I sell those reductions to a company, the company claims the reductions via offsets, but then I also claim them under my Paris obligations. So it kind of seems like two entities are claiming them. Walk through how this works using the the example you use in the paper is, is one of Orsted in Norway and Microsoft buying offsets from them and then Norway also counting them. So just walk through how that worked. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'm going to talk about it, not how it appeared in the paper. It, it took me a while to figure this out. There was a Bloomberg article in mid-May which reported on this. And it's only literally because I had been working on this for six months and had just gotten to realize that this particular deal was the problematic deal, or I will say one of the two problematic deals, but the other one was solvable and, and we'll get to that. So this deal, in May, the Danish government announced that it was paying the bioenergy company Orsted 
to put carbon capture systems on two biomass plants in Denmark, capture up to 450,000 tons of carbon dioxide a year, and bury it under the Norwegian Sea. And Denmark subsidized this with a fund it had set up for the very purpose of, you know, doing, you know, carbon removal and carbon capture. And so Denmark is claiming all those tons. It's putting them in its national greenhouse gas inventory. And we should say quickly that unlike the tree stuff, unlike the forest stuff, these really are verifiable and verified emission reductions. That's not the issue here. Right. Certainly, this is a a more quantifiable and and also potentially more permanent. The other problem with trees and stuff is trees aren't permanent as as we're living through, you know, more and more (laughs) these days. And indeed, this is was, uh, you know, these were emissions that were coming uh, from Danish uh, power plants. Right. So these were official Danish emissions that they had agreed to, right, eventually eliminate entirely, you know, for their meeting their pledge under the Paris Agreement. And so that seems very reasonable. And if that had been it, it would have been a perfectly fine deal to announce. <laughs> but uh, Orsted also announced that it was selling over half of the same exact tons that it had just sold to Denmark to Microsoft, which also threw in some money and is also claiming them to offset some of its corporate emissions. So the same tons are being sold twice and they're being claimed twice. Right. So what you've got is Denmark claiming these tons under their Paris pledges and then Microsoft claiming these tons under its private pledge to reduce its emissions. Both entities are claiming the tons. And if you ask Orsted, I mean, it's not like this is a secret that this is happening. It's It's right there in the press release. If you ask Orsted, they say, there's no problem here. This is just two separate accounting systems. Accounting systems. Yes, I wrote when I saw this. I, I wrote a letter uh, email to the the person who was in the press release for the Danish government at the Danish Energy Agency. I sent email to Orsted, and I sent one to Microsoft. Twelve days later, the the Danish government writes back and says, you know, we don't consider this to be a double claiming because there are two different inventories we're talking about. Um, Now, interestingly, the Danish press release never mentioned Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And basically, the tone of the email was, we don't really care what Microsoft does. (laughs) We're claiming them officially in our national inventory to meet our climate targets. And, you know, we, we we don't care what anyone else does. So Orsted said, yeah, it's two different inventories. And ultimately, Microsoft said the same thing. We, we can, but, you know, someone in the, uh, some journalists asked me, how could there be two different inventory, you know, two different uh, accounting systems? And I said, it's easy. One's real and one's pretend. <laughs> and that's what is really going on here. The, the voluntary market is the pretend market. I think that that has become clear over the decades, that these that what companies are doing is pretending to do something and then really taking credit for being a good environmental actor. But clearly, what this deal shows, if you knew nothing else about the voluntary market, it's clear that Denmark has every right to claim those tons, right? It did subsidize them. The tons came from their country. They're putting them in their inventory, and they are actually helping to solve the climate problem. Right. Uh, They made a pledge. So that's clearly the real market, the one that is recognized by the entire world. So whatever Microsoft is doing here, they're not offsetting tons. So you could say, though, I mean, just so people grasp the implications of this, given that every country in the world now has pledged emission reductions under Paris, Every deal is going to be like this. Every deal in the voluntary carbon market is going to take this same shape. It's going to be double counting. So the question of whether that double counting is legitimate or not, the entire fate of the voluntary carbon market rests on that question. Because if it's double counting and illegitimate, then there just won't be any reason for voluntary carbon offsets anymore. Every country that hosts emission reductions is going to want to claim them for itself under its Paris obligations, and why would it want to sell them? So is there any way to, I mean, as you said, you can't stop 
the voluntary market from coming in and just saying these things because there's no regulator and it can say whatever it wants. But as you say, the UN has sort of stepped in here and tried to draw a distinction now, tried to tell us a little bit about that, how the UN is trying to sort of square this circle. It is important to realize, and and again, and this, it took me a long time to understand enough to know where to look in the literature. This deal isn't just exposing the voluntary market. This deal is actually undermines the Paris Accord. And that emerged in the literature within a year of Paris. Somebody wrote a paper for a German think tank. And ultimately, there have been multiple articles. There was a report to the German Environment Ministry. Paris was designed to get every country to make commitments to reduce their emissions and then to go about the business of reducing emissions. Right. It's not a mandatory thing, right? There's no enforcement mechanism. Right, right. Um, so that's very important to remember about Paris. It is a good faith effort by countries and or, you know, uh, some people may decide, you know, whether or not how good a faith it is. But but fundamentally, the nations of the world came together at Paris and made these commitments. And there is now pressure on countries to meet these targets. And obviously, as the climate keeps getting worse and worse, it will be harder and harder, I think, for countries to walk away from them. The problem with this deal is if I'm a developing country and I've made emissions reduction target, I'm disincentivized from reducing my own emissions because I can just sit around waiting until some rich company comes in and says, hey, I'll buy some of those tons from you, even though you're not selling them to me, and and do this deal. And basically, that's what the literature said. The literature said, you know, this deal, first of all, it's not an offset. The country had already agreed it was going to make these reductions. Right. Therefore, it was going to happen anyway. Right. This is the hypothetical thing. Like, Paris, all the countries committed to reductions. Therefore, there's no hypothetical world anymore without the reductions, right? Like, these, (laughs) the whole premise has been wiped away. Yeah, these aren't offsets. That's just, and and by the way, the gold standard, and I emailed back and forth with the gold standard. The gold standard said this. It has written articles basically saying that this deal, anyone who does this deal cannot call what they own an offset. And they will not, you know, they're not going to sign off on any such deal being called an offset. So yes, uh, as you say, the fundamentally Paris was the beginning and the end of of voluntary offsets. And uh, people should have realized that. When the Paris Accord was signed, everybody knew, and the Paris Accord has something called Article 6, and I'm only saying this because I know your your audience is is sophisticated, and I think they should understand this. So Article 6 is the part of the Paris Accord that deals with carbon credit trading and carbon offsets. 6.2 is carbon credit trading, 6.4 is offsets. So that was part of the Paris Accord. However, it became clear that the deal that we're describing between a company and a country is one thing, but you clearly can't allow the double counting if it's two countries. So by unanimously agreeing to the Paris Accord, The world was saying, we are going to work out the details of this Article 6 and offsets at a later date. (laughs) But the literature was clear that there's only two solutions to the double counting problem. So what what is the double counting problem? Let's make use very simple math. Imagine that Brazil has 2 billion tons of CO2 emissions and the United States has 2 billion tons of CO2 emissions. And the United States says to Brazil, I, we want to buy half of your tons that are the easiest to reduce. Right. And we're going to pay you this amount of money and you're going to sell them to us. And they do this deal. Now, Brazil has actually physically reduced its emissions by a billion tons. Right. right? So it actually has a billion tons of emissions. But the United States wants to claim that it also reduces emissions a billion tons, but clearly they can't both claim that because then they would each have one billion tons, but the world would actually have three billion. They combined would yeah. have two billion tons, whereas the world still has three billion tons, right? Because the United States actually has two billion tons. So there's only two solutions to the double counting problem. Either the buyer doesn't count the tons or the seller doesn't count the tons, right? I think that's 
pretty straightforward. Now, if the buyer doesn't count the tons, then it's not an offset, right? They're just helping Brazil reduce its emissions. <laughs> right. And that, in COP27, in, in, in November 2022, that the world agreed that, that would be called a mitigation contribution emission reduction. That, that the country, the rich country, was helping contribute to a greenhouse gas mitigation, uh, helping Brazil uh, you know, uh, achieve its Paris Agreement, helping the world reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but it couldn't take any credit for them itself, could not be used as an offset. So you can, you can have a, a reputational boost, you can get a little green glow, you can get some good PR, but you cannot claim to be reducing your own emissions when you're the buyer right. in this situation. And you should know that the environmental community had been urging the voluntary market to move to that exact scheme for many years. Just don't call it an offset. <laughs> you can keep doing what you're doing. Rich companies can help poor countries reduce emissions. Just don't call it an offset. Just don't pretend you're buying the same thing that they're not selling to you. I mean, it always seemed obvious to me that if the country that reduced the emissions is keeping the tons, then they're not selling them to you. So how could you be buying them? And by the way, the gold standard uh, agreed to do this for the voluntary market in the last year or two. The gold standard is basically saying you can't do not call any of our projects offsets anymore unless you meet very strict criteria, including that it doesn't involve, you know, the Paris Agreement. So the other solution is the one that is complicated. It's not that complicated, but it's sufficiently complicated that no one understands what was actually the implications of what was agreed to. <laughs> so the, the solution where it's a real offset and the selling country, Brazil, doesn't keep the emissions reductions, Brazil has to publicly announce to the world that it is giving up those tons and it is not going to count those emissions reductions in its own inventory because it's selling them to the United States. Now, there's only one way this can happen is if Brazil adds back the billion tons to its official inventory. And that addition, that billion tons, that's called the corresponding adjustment. Corresponding adjustment. So the idea then is you're selling the tons, you're literally selling the tons, which means you no longer have them. So in that case, the United States could claim to be reducing its emissions, but then Brazil could not claim right. to be reducing its emissions. It would still have the 2 billion tons on the books. So put simply, the rich country gets to pretend that it made emissions reductions even though it didn't, and the poorer country has to pretend that it didn't make any emissions reductions, even though it did. <laughs> right. And this is now a legitimate framework in the UN. You, you can do this. It, it, when, the, when the final rules are written, all the rules have not been agreed to. But at COP26, the nations of the world, you know, when the nations of the world signed off on the Glasgow Accord or Agreement or whatever you want to call the final document, they were unanimously agreeing that they were going to set up something called an authorized offset. And in order for an offset to be authorized, it had to come with the corresponding adjustment. The developed country had to give up those emissions reductions. And as you might imagine, this deal doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> well, it does make sense in one way. We should say the one way that it does make sense, which is unlike the old regime where neither the buyer or the seller had any incentive at all to ensure quality. <laughs> now, at least, if I'm Brazil and I'm selling some of my emission reductions and I won't be able to use them on my inventory anymore, I'm by God going to be sure that those are high quality, right? Like I don't want to be selling, I don't want to be giving up my ability to reduce emissions on the cheap, right. right? So at least like, at least now one party in the transaction has some reason to care about quality. Right. And this gets to the core issue which is these offsets won't be cheap. And this is the thing that is the complete game changer that, that everybody needs to understand. It's one of the reasons why I wrote this paper once I figured it out. Developing countries must not sell these off cheaply. And the reason is pretty clear. If the developing countries let the rich countries skim off 
their cheap emissions reductions right. at a low price. Those developing countries, because they're all going net zero, right? This is the point. Everybody's going to zero. Those countries are going to have to go back in the market later and buy those tons back, right? Because they have to pretend they didn't make those reductions. In other words, Brazil had 2 billion tons. It cut its emissions a billion, but it gave that up to the United States. So it has to pretend it has 2 billion, even though it only has one. So in order to become net zero, Brazil not only has to reduce the remaining billion, it has to offset the corresponding adjustment bill. <laughs> the billion it sold. Right. So the only way it's going to do that is with the expensive stuff, you know, direct air capture, you know, whatever, whatever is the price towards the end of the emissions reduction period. And, and by the way, I had to use ChatGPT to help me find a lot of these sources. <laughs> when the, the developing countries were told that by signing the Paris Agreement, they were going to have to give up the tons, they weren't happy. And when Brazil... People may know, if people who follow Paris know, that Brazil and some other developing countries were the obstacle. They had refused to make this agreement until Glasgow. And when Brazil finally agreed to make this deal, they added a little hooker. They said, yes, we'll agree to your, you know, dumbass thing. But we retain the rights to make the decision ourselves as to whether we keep the tons or give them up which is to say we can decide, and, and no one has been able to tell me, by the way, when they get to make that decision, uh, whether they can do it at the beginning or the end. But the point that I want to make here is that since the developing countries are going to have to go back into the market to buy those tons, they better not sell those tons for anywhere near the current market price for voluntary offsets. Yeah. And this gets back to the point that you made at the very beginning. The, the one really bad thing about the voluntary market is that it left everyone with the impression that there was this vast sea, unlimited sea of cheap emissions reductions in developing countries that they would be able to buy up instead of doing the hard work of reducing their own emissions, right? So, because fundamentally offsets are a way of not doing, you know, our own renewables, efficiency, you know, electrification, et cetera, et cetera, right? We're going to pay someone else to do the hard work. So because everyone thought that this was the case, I think it, it has fooled a lot of companies into making the same net zero pledge, right? Right. They think it's cheap. Yeah, we'll, we'll solve it cheap. But the whole point is once the country has to give up those tons then it has to say, what is the correct price of those tons? The correct price isn't how much it cost me to do this project. It's the replacement cost. Right. And so the World Bank came out in February with a paper which explained all this. Because I, I was sort of figuring this out and I said, this can't be true. This is all ridiculous. So the World Bank came out in February with a, an analysis which basically said the following, these tons aren't cheap. First of all, the offset projects themselves won't be cheap because the offset projects were only cheap before because they weren't real. <laughs> right. So I mean, they didn't say that. I'm, I'm putting in some color commentary. But basically, these projects are going to be more genuine because, as you said, Brazil isn't going to give up tons. Right. In other words, if, if Brazil was going to reduce these emissions anyway, right, the additionality problem. Brazil's never going to sell tons it was going to do anyway to some other country, right? Because that's rendering the action meaningless for them. So what the bank said is, first of all, the tons are going to be more expensive because they're going to be realer. And there's going to be fewer in each deal because the seller isn't going to want to inflate them. So the point is, the deals are going to be more expensive, A. And B, there has to be a price for giving up the corresponding adjustment. And what the bank said is the actual price is going to be somewhere between the cost to the seller to purchase the last ton it needs to to meet its 2030 target. 
right? Because it's adding those tons on at the end, right? if you see what I'm saying. So all of those tons are, right, it sold off the cheap emissions reductions, you know, tree planting, you know, whatever you want to say, shut down some coal plants, whatever is easy, right? The stuff, the hard stuff, you know, like steel or concrete, you know, all that stuff, right? That stuff the United States isn't buying. So the bank said the actual price for these tons should be at a minimum what it would cost the developing country to meet its last ton. But then it added the following, which is, which is what I basically thought, which is, in fact, the actual price isn't the marginal cost for the developing country to meet the last ton. It's the marginal cost for the rich country. And this, you know, this is a very important point. Imagine a world where these authorized offsets are $50 a ton, but if you look at the models, and, and the World Bank published you know, the results of a, of a GCAM model uh, that had been done of what the, it, it would cost countries to meet the 2030 target, the marginal cost for the U.S. is $155 a ton. For the EU and Japan, it's more like 120 a ton. You know, the EU market, right, the, the closest to a real ton on the market is what's traded on the European trading system. It's an e- a European Union allowance. And those are currently sitting around $90 a ton of carbon. They've been oscillating between $80 and $100 a ton for the last year or so. So that's closer to a real emissions reduction by a developing country. So the point is, if these authorized offsets were being sold by Brazil and developing countries for $50 a ton, and it costs the United States at the end $155 a ton to meet its hardest target, it's just going to keep buying the authorized offsets, right? They're going to bid the price up until it's much closer to what it costs the rich countries. Because otherwise, it'd be insane for the rich countries to do it themselves for 150 a ton if they can pay another country 50 a ton. So the point is, once everyone realizes this, once everybody reads my report or you know really starts to think about it, they're going to realize that these tons should not be sold except at at least $100 a ton. And if we could just, just to bring this full circle, so if you're selling reductions to another country, you're not double counting. Right. You're verifying that they're that they're long-term permanent reductions. If you're dotting all your I's, crossing all your T's, and properly pricing these things, that basically the buyer is going to end up paying as much as they would need to pay to reduce their own tons. Yeah, the, the final tons. Which gets you to the sort of final conclusion here, which is what is the point of all this anymore? If the offset markets were rational, were not double counting, were high quality, were verified, they wouldn't really pose any price savings over just reducing your own emissions in the first place. Right. So what is the point of having them at all? Right. And that is the important point. This is the thing that... that <laughs> should have been obvious once the Paris Accord started to be put into place. If everyone in the world has to go down to zero, then it doesn't make any sense for you to sell off any of your cheap tons, right? You've got to keep them for yourselves. Right. And so someone might say, oh, but there's going to be all these negative emissions tons out there, right? There's going to be bioenergy carbon capture and storage. There's going to be direct air carbon capture and storage. And then we can plant an unlimited amount of trees. And I'm working on papers on all of those, and people just need to understand that none of those are scalable. Trees are not scalable. <laughs> Direct air carbon capture and storage is not scalable, certainly not by 2050. And bioenergy carbon capture and storage is not even a climate solution. And I love doing an anal- coming out an analysis in September with some original modeling by one of the best modeling you know, groups in the world that are basically going to show that bioenergy carbon capture and storage not only isn't a solution by 2050, it would probably warm things up. But in any case, there is no net zero. There is only zero. There's no free lunch. Everyone is going to have to reduce their own emissions. And some may take longer and some may take sooner, but it doesn't matter. Anyone who sells off their cheapest emissions reductions now to anyone else is one of two things. Either they're making a mistake or they're not going to honor the agreement. Right. So offsets made sense in a world where some people were reducing and others weren't, or others, some people had to reduce and others didn't. Right. But in a world, in a Paris world where everybody's going to zero, it's just a, 
shell game. Like you're just moving these things around. In the end, they all have to be reduced. Like in the end, the money is the money. The reductions are the reductions. Everybody's got to reduce to zero. So the whole justification for the shell game of, of buying and selling these reductions has kind of like vanished out from under the market. It has. And, you know, I just want to use a little bit of history. The, the reason I think people, you know, got the wrong impression for two or three reasons. One is when carbon trading was first set up, right, the famous acid rain program, sulfur dioxide program that was set up under George H.W. Bush, that was a 50% reduction, right? Now, in a world where you have every company has to cut its emissions 50%, it makes some sense if one company can easily reduce down 60% to sell those 10% to another company that can't easily get past its own 40% reduction. Right. This is just trading. This is credit trading. It's, right. the, whole, it's the whole economic justification for credit trading in any context. Right. Is, is, that's the market efficiency, right? This is the efficiency in the marketplace that was why economists and corporations liked that. <laughs> but again, if we imagine that the acid rain program said everyone had to take their sulfur dioxide down to zero, and there was no way to pull sulfur dioxide out of the air, then it would have been, again, crazy, right, for some company to sell off some extra easy, you know, there is no extra emissions, right? The point is there's yeah, no extra there's no emissions. such thing as extra. <laughs> there's no away. Yeah, and in this sense, by the way, even the European trading system, people will come to realize, doesn't make a lot of sense. It's good for price discovery. Those markets are very good for price discovery. How much does it really cost? You know, and, and there is a 2030 target, right? Everyone doesn't have to go to zero by 2030. But, but when you think about it, why should Brazil sell some tons to France to meet its 2030 target when by 2050 everyone's going to zero? Yes. I mean, you might say, oh, well, by 2050 we'll have a lot of new technologies, and maybe we will. And, and I'm not here going to tell you what is going to exist in 2045 or not. But I, I think the main message is that ultimately what Paris means is you got to reduce your own emissions. All right. So we've established here that in a world where everybody is going to zero, it doesn't make a ton of sense to shuffle around. It certainly doesn't make sense to sell your cheapest reductions when you have to get to zero because then you're going to just end up having to make much, much more expensive reductions at the end or do carbon, yeah. you know, DAC or something like that at the end, which may or may not even be possible. So the whole point of shuffling around emissions between entities has kind of lost some of it or, or all of its <laughs> rationale in a world where everybody's going to zero. So, so then a question, let's take it back to the beginning because a lot of the reason – the voluntary offset market exists in the first place is that there are lots of companies and entities who with varying degrees of good faith want to do good things yeah. on climate <laughs> and are pushed to by their customers, by their employees want to do something good. So if you're telling them going out on the voluntary carbon market, buying these offsets and then claiming you've reached net zero is BS, complete BS, it's physical BS, it's accounting BS, it no longer makes any sense anymore. What should entities who want to help and do good things, what should they do in light of this? Well, it, it is a challenge, and I've been, you know, I've been asked that question. Certainly one thing you can do if, if you are really, you really want to do, quote unquote, an offset, is, is anyone can go to a broker and buy tons on the European trading system and, and retire them. Mm, right. Just as people did buy into the sulfur, as you know, you, I'm sure you remember, people did buy sulfur allowances and retired them. So yes, that can be done. I mean, I suppose if it were done a lot, then the European Union might limit it. But I would say, yes, you, you can go in to the market and do that. And, you know, uh, 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 companies like Microsoft are funding, like, direct carbon removal, except, you know, that's like 500 a ton. And the, the point is that at that price, you know, right now, you know, you, for a few dollars a ton, right, you, you can off a few dollars, you can off supposedly offset your airline travel, right? If the price were $100 a ton, it would cost like a third of your ticket. 
So <laughs> a lot fewer people are going to do that, uh, needless to say. Right. So you can't buy verified actual carbon reductions in that they're burying them and sealing them in the ground permanently if you're willing to spend whatever, $500 a ton. So your your plane ticket would then be, you know, whatever, $10,000. Right. Except, of course, as we said, you can't do that if those tons belong to a, another country that has its own need to reduce its emissions. That was the mistake that Microsoft made. And you know, I admire Microsoft because they, they made a leading edge commitment. They committed not only to offset all of their emissions and go down to zero uh, without offsets, I believe, but they, they said they were going to offset all of their emissions since the company was incorporated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Microsoft, I think, is acting, you know, in good faith. So that's a, like a good example here. Like. Except the problem is, and I've talked to people about them, those tons don't exist and and I and I don't think Microsoft realized when they made the commitment. And I think somebody out there, hopefully someone knows someone high up in Microsoft, they are stuck with this commitment at a corporate level. But those tons don't exist. Not not if you you know unless you do the double claiming stuff, unless you do the stuff that's obviously ridiculous. And because Microsoft has said we only want to do high quality tons, right? They published, they did a whole RFP mm-hmm. for tons and they rejected 98% of the projects that were proposed to them and said we are only to do high quality offset uh, removals, you know. And, and I will tell you, I, I spent weeks trying to convince Microsoft that this was not a high quality uh, removal project. But um, I'm hopeful someone else out there can persuade them to stop doing this particular deal. I think that it is going to be a challenge. Yes, there are a lot of companies out there that have made a net zero commitment without realizing, thinking, again, <sighs> that there was this vast sea of cheap tons in the poor country. And I, and I, the, the notion that the rich countries could skim off the easy tons from the poor countries, you know, that's like climate colonialism or climate imperialism. <laughs> and the other thing I would say to your audience is right now, Singapore, Switzerland, and South Korea are going around to developing countries and buying up tons. And I would love to see those contracts because my guess is they're selling those tons cheaply and they may be agreeing to have them be authorized tons and therefore they may not realize that they are basically being ripped off. And I believe that, you know, as I say, I wondered when I wrote the paper is so you know, everyone in the market needs to have full information. So we can't arbitrage anyone's ignorance. But the other thing is, it makes no sense to rip off anybody in this market. Because again, it's voluntary. (laughs) And if a developed country in three years said, wait, you guys ripped me off, they could just say I'm voiding the deal. Right? There's nothing. We reduced our own emissions. You can't force us to do anything. So, yes, this is a collaborative effort by the entire world to get as close to zero as possible, as quickly as possible. Yeah. I mean, maybe this even goes without saying, but (laughs) I feel like the answer to what a company or an entity of goodwill should do is just reduce your own emissions. Yes. That's (laughs) any entity, any country, that is job one, two, and three, right? Like do the hard work of reducing your own emissions. That's what everybody's going to have to do eventually. And like all of this sort of financial shell game to put off that reckoning, I just feel like should be over at this point. Everybody should be reducing their own emissions. And the one thing, and maybe we can wrap up with this, is just these BS claims of net neutrality have been circulating so long and are so casually used and are used by so many companies now that the companies that do pivot to the hard work of reducing their own emissions are on an accounting level or a PR level going to appear to be reducing less emissions, right? So I wonder if there's any way to sort of give them the reputational boost they deserve when they reduce emissions the right way. Do you know what I mean? Like, how do we how do we incentivize companies to do this the right way? That is definitely the challenge. I think that we can certainly do the reverse, which is to, you know, publicly criticize the companies that are doing this the wrong way. 
you know, I think I said that there is one body that could at least solve a lot of this problem, which is to say the, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. In Egypt, uh, COP27, the nations of the world consider, or at least the, you know, the group that looks at this, considered the possibility of banning voluntary offsets mm. of this nature that helps someone you know, achieve their NDC, achieve their Paris target. And they punted. Mm. But the fact is that, that if, if, the, if the nations of the world got together and said, if, if you don't have the corresponding adjustment, you don't have a real offset, they could do that. I mean, again, people could ignore them, but at least, you know, my feeling is that the mere fact, and I think people have, some people have caught on to this, the mere fact that the nations of the world unanimously decided to call something an authorized offset is a pretty good indication that anything else isn't real. <laughs> right. I mean, you could call it an authorized upset, but the point is one of them is in the globally recognized inventory of countries working to actually solve the problem, right? That's the real thing. Anything else is pretend. And I think, uh, and I recognize these, these are very tricky issues for the nations of the world to come to agreement on. But ultimately... Also, it's up to developing countries. You, you may have seen in the news that Zimbabwe, I think it was a month or two ago, publicly announced that all future offsets, that no company or entity can do an offset deal with a company in Zimbabwe. They have to go through the government. The government's going to take half the money. A quarter of the money is going to stay in country on the project, and only a quarter is leaving the country. And I think you're going to see as more and more countries realize what's going on here, they're going to have to stop any deal that doesn't go through the country because it's only the country that really can officially sell one of its own tons. Right. Anyone, and that's, this is what it comes down to. Orsted had no right to sell those tons to Microsoft because they weren't Orsted's tons. They were the Danish government's tons. Right, right. So, so the take home here is reduce your own friggin' emissions. Yeah. <laughs> just quit looking around for accounting gimmicks and just reduce your own emissions. And if you want to help fund emission reductions in developing countries, which is a perfectly wonderful and virtuous thing to do, do so. Just do not claim that you are thereby reducing your own emissions. Right. Just say you're making a you know, a contribution claim, mitigation contribution, you're doing a good thing. And as we both know, the rich countries really actually have a responsibility to help the poor countries. Yes. <laughs> Let's not forget that part of things. Yeah. Thanks so much for this, Joe. This is, uh, as I said, I, I knew offsets were dodgy, but like the depth of the dodginess <laughs> was, was a revelation. So um, thanks for coming on and, and uh, clearing all this stuff up for us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.